sitting in a prison cell. You might picture Paul on the beach somewhere in a vacation home or up in the mountains and uh, just relaxing. No, this was written at a dark time in his life. Sometimes the most important lessons that we learn and the longest lasting influences can come out of the darkest days that we live through. We're going to talk more about that a little bit tonight. But four short chapters filled with great truth. And I would encourage you, even tomorrow, the last day of the year, if you were to take about 15 to 20 minutes, you could read through the entire book of Philippians. It doesn't take very long. Read it tomorrow after we talk about these things tonight and just soak up some of the greatness of this book. And so I'm just going to give you a little background about the book, and then I'm going to give you two devotional thoughts, and we'll be done. We see, I gave it a title of Thanks Living would be a great title for this book. Because Paul, in the midst of everything going on, this book is a thank you letter. We see that's the first thing. Philippians was a thank you letter, number one. And uh, when the church at Philippi, you think about it, it was the most generous church of any of the churches to Paul's ministry. They heard what he was in Rome. They sent their pastor to bring him gifts and to comfort him. And in fact, Paul said in chapter number four that no church communicated with me as much as you did concerning giving and receiving. Only this church. So very interesting. This book, there's no correction going on. There's no doctrinal confusion. It's just a thank you letter to the church of Philippi for what they did. Now, don't mistake the book here. This wasn't the church in the Philippines, okay? I think some people could confuse that. The church at Philippi, I gave you a map a while back of all, where all those churches were located. And so we see, number one, that the, the Philippians was a thank you letter. And then number two, Philippians was delivered by Epaphroditus. That's quite a name right there. Say, so how do you spell that? Look at the screen. It's right there for you. E-P-A-P-H-R-O-D-I-T-U-S. Aren't you glad you, we don't have names like that today? I, I'm glad we don't have names like that today. But he was the pastor of the church at Philippi, we believe, if we study it and look things out. And he took to Paul the stuff from the, the giving that they gave and how they took care of him in prison. You know, nowadays in prison, they feed you a few meals. They give you different things. But back in Bible days and even several years back, it'd be the same sort of thing. The families would take care of those who were prisoners. They wouldn't just get handed things in jail. And so what we have, Epaphroditus came and he took, they gave Paul and took care of Paul. And Paul gave him this letter to return to the church. Number three, when we talk about the book of Philippians, Philippi is a city in Greece, but it was also a Roman colony. And many of the residents in the city of Philippi, they were Italian. And you see Roman and Greek names, and it was a Gentile church. It was not just a Jewish church, it was a Gentile church. Now, the fourth thing that we see, and this is all just information, we'll get to some good stuff here in a few minutes. The church at Philippi was the first Christian church in Europe. If you want to read about the founding of the church, it's found in Acts chapter number 16. Now, if you would, after you write that in there, go to Acts chapter 16 for a minute. I want you to see some things about this church, the church of Philippi and its beginnings. Acts 
It didn't start out with a synagogue. We've talked about synagogues before and how all those things take place. But what we see happen is Acts chapter 16, look at verse number 12. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of the part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us, and it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And we see that this church was started through a prayer meeting. That's how it was started. Quite different than other churches, but this was the church, first Christian church in Europe. And when we talk about that and we see, the next thing I want to tell you is, well, number five would be the key verse, which I already told you. So you've already got that, which leads to number six, that women occupied a prominent place in this church. And we see that from Acts chapter 16, right before our very eyes. A lady named Lydia was the first convert in Europe. The second convert in Europe would have been the, um, um, the Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas. And so, but, and then we could go back to Philippians chapter and look in those chapters there. And it's interesting that two women are mentioned in the book. Chapter number four, verse number two. I mentioned this on Sunday for a second. I beseech Eodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Wow, how would you like to be these two women that are mentioned in this book to get along with one another? And so we see that they're mentioned here. And uh, you wonder why you don't meet many ladies that have those names nowadays? It's because they were known for bickering and disunity. Kind of like you ever see someone with the name, anybody named their daughter Jezebel? Have you ever seen someone? I hope no one would do that to their poor daughter, but um, I've seen dogs named Jezebel and things like that, but we'll just leave all that there. But women played a predominant place in this church, and Lydia played a predominant role, and not predominant role, and how, what a blessing that is to see. We see about the city there, the city was named by King Philip II in 356 B.C., King Philip, anybody know who King Philip was? Anybody know who King Philip's son was? Alexander the Great. And in his humility, Philip named the city Philippi after himself. Isn't that really humble of the guy to do? And so, now, if you don't know who Philip is, you do know Alexander the Great, though, right? Okay. And so ancient history, that's one of my favorite things, so I give you a whole long spill from the book of Daniel till the New Testament. I can go through a lot of different things and go through Daniel. It's pretty neat, interesting if you like history. If you don't like history, I'm not going to bore you with all that tonight, so it'll be okay. And then number eight, the theme of the book is joy. It's a joyful book of gratitude and love. The word joy is used four times. Rejoice is found 11 times. And then, so you think of those two, joy and rejoice, 15 times in 104 verses, you find that. 
Now, I'm going to give you, as I said, two short devotionals about the book of Philippians, two things to be a help to us. You'll notice you'll have notes for one of them. And the second one, I didn't give you notes because I wasn't sure if I was going to do both, but I decided to do both. And so you can fill in and write somewhere on, on your paper there if you want to for the second one. We're going to look at this thing of true thanks living. And when we think about Christians, when we think about joy, joyful Christians, when we think about joyful Christians, what are some things, what are some characteristics of joyful Christians? That's what I'm going to give you tonight. Number one, we see that joyful Christians are thankful. Paul is, an, is a great example of a joyous Christian. We look at chapter number one of Philippians and we look at verse number three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul says, I thank God every remembrance, not just some of them, every single one. That's quite, that's quite a statement right there. In fact, you read back in the book of Acts, I don't even know if Paul really wanted to go to Philippi. If that was really where he wanted to go. When he got there, he was beaten, he's flogged, thrown in prison, quite a thing. But he said, I'm thankful for every remembrance of you. When you think about this, joyful Christians focus on the good, focus on what really matters, even when things are bad. That's why the Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And you see, as like, we got to find the good. It's easy, though, for us to just find the bad. Because a lot of times, that's all that we see. But God's working behind the scenes, and a joyful Christian is a thankful Christian. That's key. And that's where you got to, you look at circumstances, and you look at your life, and things. That, that's why Paul could say, saying in prison, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joyful Christians are thankful. And in Christianity today, we need to be more thankful. It's been a crazy year. I think we all could admit that. But we have so much to be thankful for this year. And don't ever lose sight of that. Joyful Christians are thankful. Number two, joyful Christians are humble. Joyful Christians are humble. We look at chapter number two of Philippians, and we look down at verse number three. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, that's how Jesus lived his life. You know, you could look at Jesus and you could say, he had a cross to bear. He had quite a job, a task before him. But what did he do? He went around, he did, as it says in verse number four, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I gave you an illustration if you were in the second service Sunday morning. I didn't think of it in time for the first service, so second service God. That's what happens. Sometimes you come to the, if you come to the first service, you get out on time pretty much. You come to the second service, it goes a little long because there's a few more things that pop into my head by the time I preach it a second time. But I had Isaiah come back up here for a minute. I gave the example of how we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so this is what happens. And you get to hold these again. These are going to get put away soon. But 
Fill up your arms with them. Let's see, what else did I give you? I gave you a song book. I gave you this. Here you go. It looks like you've been eating Cheetos, the flaming Hot Cheetos or something with those fingers. And uh, so this is how a lot of Christians live the Christian life. Hey, brother, how you doing? Good. And he's carrying all the weight of the world on his shoulders, and we don't care. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that's the example that I gave, and I said, well, we come alongside, like, hey, let me help you. And we take these things, and then we go together, and I help bear his burdens. The one thing I left out, and afterwards I thought, man, if I had a third service, there would have been something else to add. You got to take this songbook back, too. Here you go. Just stand there and look, look. No, you can't look pretty. Never mind. You can't do that. But this is the other part of it. This is what most of us do. We have all of our burdens. How can I carry someone else's burdens when I've got all my burdens? That's why we're not supposed to look at our own things. Let me help you. And what happens? We take our eyes off of all our problems. And we help minister to someone else. And we fulfill the law of Christ as we do it. The problem is a lot of times we keep all that stuff with us. And we're like, I can't help anybody because i got enough problems going on. Or where are people to help me through my problems? That's selfishness. And when we're selfish, we're of no help to anybody. That's why the Bible says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. When I'm carrying all my burdens in life, oh, I'm going to mess these up and Caroline's going to be mad at me. But when I carry all these things through life, you know what, I can't help you. I got my own problems. Does that sound like Christ? No. Christ said, you know what? I got a cross, but you know what? You're struggling. I'm going to help you. That's Christianity. And so I left that out on Sunday, so I should have added that, but we can put those down. And don't mess them up because Caroline won't be happy. Don't mess with Caroline's poinsettias, okay? Those are her prized Christmas possessions in here. And you messed it up a little bit. What are you doing? No, I think that was me. Anyway, so, but it's important to not, but joyful Christians are humble. And when we look at that, the more humble you are, the more joy that you'll find. The more you get lifted up in pride, the more conflict you have, the more contention you have, the more dissatisfaction you'll find with things with the more pride that comes into your life. So we see the joyful Christians, number one, are thankful. Joyful Christians are humble. Here's the next one. Joyful Christians get along with others. We were in chapter number four earlier, and we read those verses, and you see the Bible says, chapter four, verse number two, I beseech Eodius and I beseech Sentiki that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and with my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There needs to be, for a, a joyful Christian, there's going to be a spirit of unity. It just brings joy. Discord does not bring joy. And we could go, and I can give you so many examples of that. And Paul urges the Christians there in Philippi to be of the same mind. In chapter number 2, in verse number 2, 
Be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Chapter 3, verse number 16, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same things. And he says, hey, be of the same mind. You will not have joy. If you're not, it's hard to be joyous if you're not getting along with people. And when we look at this, don't be the church grump. Don't be the family grump. Don't be the online grump. Be a joyful Christian and just get along with others. And I love something that Paul says here at the end of verse number three. He says, and he talks about these people, he says, whose names are in the book of life. You realize you're going to be in heaven with a lot of people you might not get along with down here. Let's get along with people. Joyful Christians get along with people. Grumps don't. Number four, joyful Christians are content. Joyful Christians are content. These, these are powerful verses, chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye are also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned sitting in a jail cell, and not like today's jail, we're talking old school, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Joyful Christians are content. You know what a lot of Christians, I, I've seen it on Facebook the past couple days, and I think I've said it probably myself, I can't wait for 2020 to be over. How many of you would kind of agree to those sentiments just a little bit? That's not a very good Christian attitude. We need to be content where we're at. But our state shut down. Be content with where you're at. And I love, Paul said he learned it. It took some work. So it just wasn't, it's not natural for us to be content with situations. But Paul said he learned it. And some of us just need to be a little faster learners than what we are right now and just learn it a little bit quicker. Number, what's the next one? Number five, joyful Christians rest in the Lord. Joyful Christians rest in the Lord. Chapter four, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Joyful Christians tr don't trust in their own strength in the midst of heartache and trials. Joyful Christians find their strength in Christ, not in circumstances and not in their own abilities. When you get your eyes off Christ, you will lose your joy. Joyful Christians rest in Christ. Number six, and lastly, under this first little devotional, joyful Christians are generous. Like, I knew you were going to mention money somewhere with it. The book says it, not me, okay? Paul says it here. And the the Lord does say he loves a cheerful giver, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? It does say that. That is Bible. 4, verse 15. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire that desire fruit that may abound to your account. 
But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. Look at this. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Now, I will add a little something right here. A lot of Christians quote that verse, that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I think that you need to put that verse in context. That verse is not found by itself. That verse is talking about a church and people who are generously giving to Paul's needs. You want God to take care of you? You do what you're supposed to do. Everyone loves to take verses in the Bible, and they love to take them and say, well, God wants me happy. God does want you to be happy. But you'll find happiness when you do what he tells you to do. That's what everyone misses out on. Say, God will supply all my needs. Then why don't you do your part, as was listed here? And then the other thing is, you got to remember, it says all your needs, not your wants. Big difference in the two. I want a new car. And God says, here's a used one. It will get you from point A to point B. It might not be, though, but God takes care of all of our needs, and he'll supply them. And not according to our bank accounts or the stimulus checks from the government, but according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. See, joyful Christians, we look at this tonight, are thankful, they're humble, they get along with others, they're content, they rest in the Lord, and joyful Christians are generous. Are you a joyful Christian? You can take some time and think about that with the Lord tonight after you go home or if you read this more tomorrow, this book. I want to give you a few other thoughts, and as I mentioned, this is not found in your notes there. But when we think, we mentioned the book of Philippians is a book about joy. Joe, you actually get to relax for a few minutes back there, right? You don't have any things to put up on the screen. Because I wasn't sure I was going to go into all of this, and I got, I didn't know how much time I would have. Because I thought we have the video at the end, the video's 10 minutes, and I thought, you know what, forget the video. You can watch it on your own. I'll just preach a little bit longer. So, we look, and this will be a blessing, or maybe not, in your life. But pretty much, the worst possible physical place to find yourself in would be jail. And I know nowadays it's better than what it was in Paul's day, but still, anybody want to go to jail tonight? Anybody? I know three meals a day, all of that. I don't think anybody would say they want to go to jail. Where do we send people who commit the worst acts against humanity? Jail. In our mindset, if you want to give someone the ultimate punishment here on earth, you lock them in a cell with only their basic and minimum necessities and rights, and that's what they get. You rob a bank, you go to jail. They tell you when and where you can exercise. They tell you how long you can be outside. Oh, wait, that's California. Never mind, I'm going to get off that one. They tell you how long you can be on the phone. They tell you when you can be on the phone. They let you know who can visit with you and when. That does sound like California just a little bit, doesn't it? But when we think about jail and these things, I want you to think for a minute. I want to think about Paul's perspective while he was in jail. Paul mentions four times. I mentioned joy and being a joyous Christian. I want to talk about, he uses the words bonds four times. And they're all four of them mentioned in chapter number one. 
And when you hear a word repeated in things, there's some things to look at. So go back to Philippians chapter number 1, and I want you to see some things. And our trials, how I want to talk about for a minute, I'm going to give you four quick points on how to handle and view our trials properly from Paul's perspective from the book of Philippians. And so if you want to write these down, you can, whatever you want to do. First one is this, our trials can bring us closer to others. Our trials can bring us closer to others. So where's that found? Look at chapter 1, verse number 8. Paul says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this is what happens. Trials will do one of two things. When you view your trial improperly or whatever's going on in your life, when there's bitterness, there's anger, the opposite will happen. You want to be away from everybody, and you don't want to be near anybody. Trials have a way of drawing us closer to one another and allowing us to help one another. Paul said, ye are partakers of my grace. That's what the, the, of my grace. And Paul has been imprisoned when he's, and if, when we look at this here, he was desiring to be with those people. And when you walk through a valley with someone, God can knit your hearts closer in a very special way. When you're going through a trial, this is the tendency to shut everybody out. But we see Paul said in verse number 8, Therefore God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Don't shut people out of your life when you're walking through a valley. That's where the bearing one another's burdens comes into play. And how we're supposed to weep with them that weep. Isn't that what the Bible tells us to do? Don't isolate yourself. In the midst of the trial, one of the worst things you can do is isolate yourself. You don't have to carry it all by yourself. And one of the things that happens with a trial is, too, a lot of times when we isolate ourselves from people, we also isolate ourselves from God. It goes hand in hand together. And that's not, the, that's not a good thing to do in our trials. And we see that our trials can bring us closer to others. The second thing is this. Our trials that we go through can broaden our influence. The trials that we go through can broaden our influence. Look at what Paul says in chapter 1, verse number 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. When you and I face a deep trial, God can use it to allow us to touch others' lives that we never could have been able to touch. Who can minister to the person who loses a loved one in a deepest way? Someone who's been down that road already. When we face the bonds of our lives, we have much more compassion and love for those who are facing similar things. I'll give you an example of my own life. I'm sure I said it multiple times from the pulpit. What's wrong with you that get anxious? Don't you trust God? Well, the past couple of years, there have been times where my anxiety has built up. And I try my best to trust God all the time. I do. But there are times it comes. 
And you know, I'm not so quick to say, what's wrong with you? I'm like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Gives me some compassion, some love for people. And who knows the best way, you think about it, who knows and sympathizes with families that are challenged with whatever the case may be, other families who go through similar trials. And what we see there in verse, and look at verse number 12, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in the palace and in all other places. The thing about this, it should cause us to do more for the sake of the gospel. And God can use our trials to reach people and help people in ways that you could never imagine. And we see that in this passage. We see, number one, that our trials can bring us closer to others. Number two, our trials can broaden our influence. Number three, our trials can embolden the faith of others. Our trials can embolden the faith of others. And that's why, that's another thing too. It's a good thing when you're going through your trials and when you're going through hard times, be honest with how you're doing. Sometimes we feel, and you know, and I've heard Jay and his messages on these things, none of us are super Christians. We sure try to act like it though. And I don't care if you're the pastor of the church or if you're the sound man in the back, none of us are supermen or superwomen. We're not. But look at what verse 14 says, and Paul says here, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's Paul saying? People look at what's gone on in my life and say, If Paul can make it, then I can make it. If so-and-so can live for God in light of what's taking place in their life, how can I quit? If that marriage can stay together with all that they've been through and all this imaginable heartache, then we got to work on our marriage. Paul's bonds and his response to them caused many other Christians to trust God and not fear what man could do to them. When we hear of missionaries and the things that they face in foreign fields, in the difficult situations, we think about how easy we've got it. You know, in all honesty... In California right now, you're not supposed to be attending church like you are right now. But there's no one walking in with a gun telling you you're in trouble for doing it. And there are many places around the world where doing this, they could be arrested, thrown in jail, and even die for it. And if they can stay faithful to God, so can we. It's the truth. And may I just remind you of something, too. Just as our handling of our trials can help people have more confidence in the Lord, when we don't handle them well, it can cause people to doubt. It can do the opposite effect. If a person's faith wasn't strong enough to get them through, then how is it going to work for me? And the other thing you've got to remember, Christian, is you never know who's watching you. No one's watching me. You do not know that. You do not know who's watching you. And you got to understand something. God may have allowed the trial in your life, not for your sake, but maybe for your children to see how you handle it, or your grandchildren, or a fellow church member 
or a coworker or some friend. And our trials can embolden the faith of others. And then lastly, number four, our trials can bring out those who will try to hurt us. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envying and strife, and some of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. When you face a trial, you may find people kicking you while you're down. Say, any examples in the Bible? Of course. Job's three friends, right? Yeah, they were there. But Job, if you weren't such a bad guy, God wouldn't have done this to you. They were kicking him while he was down. And that happens, and people will blame you and say, maybe you're facing this because of how wicked you are. What lesson is God trying to teach you? Where's your God in the midst of this? You live for him? You know, Paul, where's your God in all of this? You live for him and he puts you in prison? Things like that will come to pass. When Jesus was on the cross, hey, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. It's bound to happen. Our trials can bring out those who will try to hurt us even more. What should our response be? Paul says in verse 18 and 19. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What a response. See the good, ignore the evil, and stay faithful through the trial. What great lesson from Paul in this area. As we look and as we close tonight, I want you to go with me to the last chapter, chapter 4. And look at what God did through Paul in this time. A lot of times we, the, when Paul closed out a letter, it's kind of like we close out a letter, you know, sincerely or in Christ or whatever the case may be, and you sign your name. They did a little differently in Bible days, but normally we'll just look at the last three verses of this chapter and just see it's his saying goodbye to them. It says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Say, well, what, what, what's there? Well, you notice that all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. All the people that Paul befriended, the people that he impacted, the people that he had conversations with as he's sitting in jail, all the people he led to the Lord during that time. Those of Caesar's household. That's pretty powerful when you stop to think about it. But grumpy Christians are not going to be a good testimony for the Lord. Joyful Christians are. And that's how Paul, in the midst of all the trials that was taking place in his life, he could still have fine joy. 
Because you've got to remember the joy of the Lord is our strength. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? Joy is so key. And in fact, isn't it one of the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. And so Christians, let's get to the place, let's be joyful Christians. Let's be a good testimony to those around us. And remember, our trials, they come. But God can use those trials to help someone else going through something. And maybe sometimes someone might be a little mean when you're going through your trial. But don't focus on that. Focus on the good and move forward. And we see these things. View your trials like Paul did. Trust God and seek to use the trials he brings into your life for his glory. That's what Philippians is all about. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've had here in the book tonight. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being our God. Bless your people. I pray that you'd help us pick up on these things. Help us to be joyful Christians. Help us to view our trials and things that go on and help us view them in the way that you would have us view them as we see here with Paul tonight. The more I read about Paul, the more I see what a great Christian he was. Thank you for his testimony. Thank you for using him the way that you did. And, and I pray that you'd help us to be a testimony that maybe others would see us as others saw Paul and be able to grow in their walk with you. Father, bless the rest of our evening. This is the last service going into the new year, and I pray that you would just work in our church. I pray that 2021 would be the greatest year yet. We would focus our hearts on you, that we would do what you've called us to do. Father, help us to be the church you desire us to be. That's my goal. That's my prayer. I don't want our church to be the church that Brian wants it to be because Brian doesn't know what this church should be. Brian wants this church to be what you want it to be to reach the potential that you have it to be. Please just work. I pray that you'd help us to set some goals, and I pray that you'd just work in our lives and grow us this upcoming year. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.